Well, good morning. We're continuing our study in the book of Second Peter, and uh, if you have your Bibles, keep them handy because we're going to be looking uh, at chapter 1. Uh, we'll be looking specifically at verses 5 through 11 here this morning. Uh, before we begin, though, I wanted to kind of open with a question, uh, and that is, do you have assurance of salvation? Having assurance of salvation simply means that you know for sure that you're saved, that you belong to Christ, that you're headed to heaven one day. Many Christians lack this assurance. Many Christians go throughout their entire life um, wondering, am I saved? Am I not? Am I going to go to heaven? Will I not? Uh, it's, a, it's a terrible place to be in, especially as you get older. When you're younger, you probably don't think about it too much. But as you get older and you realize, hey, you know, I could go anytime, you start thinking about eternity and where you will spend it. Other people will claim to have assurance of salvation uh, because they can point back in their life to an occasion where maybe they asked Jesus into their heart or they prayed a sinner's prayer or maybe even got baptized. And they'll point to those things as the markers or the evidence uh, of their saving relationship with Christ. Um, in his commentary uh, on Second Peter, uh, John MacArthur said this. He said that a tragic defeat in much of contemporary evangelism is the reliance on syllogistic assurance. And what he means by that is that Christians often conclude that they have assurance of salvation from a logical argument that uses deductive reasoning to arrive at their conclusion. And you're probably thinking, well, what in the world do you, does that mean? Well, let me give you an example of the syllogism, one of which that he's referring those who put their faith in Christ will be saved. I have put my faith in Christ. Therefore, I am saved. That's the argument. But it's a faulty argument. And it's a faulty argument that can lead to false assurance because there are some inherent assumptions in the premises. Is it biblical faith that we're talking about? Is it genuine faith? Even if it is biblical faith, is it genuine faith? It, it sounds good, but the conclusion that we draw from it may not be accurate. You see, assurance of salvation doesn't come, come from responding to an altar call. It, it doesn't come by praying a sinner's prayer uh, and by asking Jesus you know, into your heart. It comes from the objective truth of God's word, but not alone. It comes from the objective truth of God's word and the evidence, the corresponding evidence in our lives that we belong to him. And there's a third element that we persevere in the faith. See, the, the first part 
kind of involves, this is what God's word says about my relationship to him. And that's good, and we need that, and it's built on that foundation. The second part of it is basically looking at your life and seeing, is there corresponding fruit? Is there evidence in your life that you truly belong to Christ? Now, it doesn't take long as you're reading through the scriptures or, for that matter, even uh, in contemporary life to realize that there are many people who seem to start out well that seem to have fruit in their life and then they fall away. So that's why perseverance is so important. So those three things taken together is what actually helps us to know whether or not we ought to have assurance of our salvation. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 11 through 13, he says, and this is the testimony that God has given us or God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has the life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. See, John's whole purpose in writing his epistle was to let his readers know how they can know for certain that they have eternal life. Notice in those verses, he doesn't refer back to a subjective experience but rather he refers to the objective truth of what God has done for them. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. But he adds, to possess life, one must possess Christ. See, I don't know if you caught that. He, he says, whoever then has the son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's not enough to profess Christ. We must possess him. He must be living within us through his spirit. So the all-important question then is really not so much do you have the assurance of eternal life as much as it is do you have the Son is he alive in you? Has he taken up residence in your life? Is he controlling your thoughts and your actions and your attitudes? Now, we could go to several places in Scripture to, to really find the answer to that question, including Jesus' own words when he said, you will know them by their fruits. You, you can tell. John tells us in his epistle, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious, he says. The one who practices righteousness is of God. The one who doesn't isn't. Well, we're in Second Peter, so we're not going to hover in, in other passages this morning because I think Peter gives us a foolproof way of knowing if we truly belong to Christ. We are to confirm our calling and our election by growing in Christ's likeness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together here this morning and for your word to us. Um, Lord, this morning I, I just need your help because uh, 
this is uh, a passage of scripture that is wonderful, but yet um, Lord challenging on many fronts. And I just pray that you would open up our ears and our eyes that we might hear and see what you would have us to in your word, and that, uh, Lord, we would cherish it, and that um, if, uh, Lord, we, at the end of this message, uh, have questions, have concerns and doubts, Lord, I just pray that you would drive us all to your word, that we might know the exact, exact truth of these things, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. As I mentioned, I'll be looking at verses 5 through 11, but we're going to start out actually in verse 10, in the first part of verse 10 in particular. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling. Now, we're going to get to why he says, therefore, See, verse 10 comes after verses 5 through 9. It comes after 1 through 4. And he says here, therefore, brothers, pointing back to the things that he said in the previous verses, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Uh, there's, there was no way around talking about election this morning. It's right here in our text. And I don't want to get bogged down on the doctrine of election, but it is an important doctrine. And it's found just about everywhere in the New Testament. And it permeates both of Peter's epistles. In fact, Peter writes to those elect exiles or to those chosen by God. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but if, if, if you were to write you know, a, 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 a treatise on how a person comes to faith in Christ, um, we would not include this, most likely. And I'll tell you why, by giving you a quotation from Charles Spurgeon that I think was spot on. He said this, the only reason why anyone believes in election is because he finds it clearly taught in God's word. No man or number of men ever originated this doctrine. And I think the reason is quite simple. We like taking the credit for things. We, 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 there's something about us that even when it comes to these matters of faith, we, we want to feel like we have a role to play in our salvation and the scripture makes it very clear that we are saved by grace. And in my flesh, I, I just, I, the, the reason why I don't think any of us would ever written this, especially a guy, is because guys, you know, like to take credit for everything. You know, we, we, we don't want to acknowledge that we can't do something. You know, there, there, there's a part of us, a part of me that feels like I can do it. I don't need anybody's help. And, and so this flies in the face of, of my natural bent so that I can't imagine any human being, let alone the 12, you know, um, the, you know the apostles and, and uh, the other associates of theirs, uh, Luke in particular, um, who would write like this. 
Now, the doctrine of election is a very broad doctrine. It encompasses a lot of things, but here it's very specific. And so in regards to salvation, the doctrine of election teaches that before the foundation of the world, God, in his mercy and as a sheer act of grace, chose to redeem some of fallen humanity and to predestine them to become conformed to the image of his son, to the praise of his glorious grace. Um, if, if you're taking notes, you can go to Romans 8, 28 through 39. You can go to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. 2 Timothy 1, 9 through through 10. If you didn't catch those, you can see me after the service I'll be giving to you. But, but the, the New Testament is replete with references to God's uh, election um, and predestination. And, and it, it's, it's, it's an amazing doctrine. It really is. I, I like what Martin Luther said about it. He said that to those who are elect and have the spirit, predestination is the very sweetest of all doctrines. But to the worldly wise, it is the bitterest and hardest of all. The reason God saves in this way is to show that he saves not by our merits, but by election, pure and simple, and by his unchanging will. We are saved by his unchanging love. Now, no sooner you mention the word election, you know, and, you know, all sorts of things start happening. You know, people just um, either want to, you know, yay, rah, rah, it, and other people, you want to get into a debate over it. Um, it has been a source of great comfort and joy uh, to many, uh, but it's also been a source of great consternation to many. But regardless of how you feel about it here this morning, what I can tell you is that it has the support of Scripture and of reason. And any thinking Christian has got to wrestle with it, has got to take the time. And I know, you know, there's nothing more troublesome than the effort of thinking, right? And when it comes to the deep truths of God, it's just, oh, your, your mind, sometimes your mind doesn't just go in neutral, it goes in reverse, but if, if you're going to be a thinking Christian, if you're going to, re, if you really believe the Bible is the authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of God, then you have to be willing to submit your thoughts, your ideas, your opinions, you know, your interpretations to what scripture says. Now, I'm not going to go much beyond that, but I do think that we, if we're going to be honest, we need to do that. I like what Warren Wearsby said, though, because I, I, for, I, my approach has always been, I don't like labels, okay? I, I came out of the Catholic Church. That's, that's where I came out of. And first church I started to go to was a charismatic Lutheran church, of, of all places. Who knew such a thing existed? But, but that's where I went. So people want to know, right? So, so are you Lutheran now? Some people say, well, are you charismatic? Um, and, and I said, would you just let me enjoy being a Christian for a while? You know, I mean, I just found out that I wasn't after thinking that I was for 21 years. So let, let me enjoy it. We, we want to put labels on people. Are you reformed or are you one of those Arminians? You know, um, I, I tend to re, re, reject that. 
I'd like to think of myself as a biblical Christian, you know, one who, who takes God at his word. And so my approach in preaching and teaching on topics like this is I want to preach and teach what God's word says and what it means, regardless of whether or not it fits into my theological framework. And believe it or not, over the years, that framework has changed as I have done so. As I have studied the scriptures, I've grown in my faith, and the things that I believe today are not necessarily the things that I believed 10 years ago or, or 20 years ago or when I first became a believer. And, and, I, and, and, and so when I come to these kinds of passages, I'm going to sound, at least I think I, I'm going to sound like a good Calvinist. But when I get to... Those whosoever will passages, the John 3, 16s and such. I'll probably sound like a good Arminian. See, I, I don't have to reconcile it all in my tiny little brain. I just have to believe it. I just have to trust that God can reconcile this and has reconciled all of this. And one day, I'll actually have the answers. So a degree of humility comes in handy. But Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, try to explain election and you may lose your mind. But try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. That salvation begins with God and not with man. All Christians will agree. So how exactly do we confirm our calling and our election? Well, according to Peter, we do it by growing in Christ's likeness. Now, in chapter 1, chapter 1 is a beautiful chapter because what you see here is a beautiful tension between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. You see, the only way a person can be saved is if he is regenerated or, as we would say, born again by the Spirit of God. We cannot cause ourselves to be born again. It's, um, it, it is a unilateral and supernatural work of God whereby his Spirit causes those of us who were spiritually dead to become alive in Christ. You know, you go by neighborhood cemetery, um, there's nobody there um, that has caused themselves to come alive. It can't be done. They're dead. But God is able to raise the spiritually dead. He's able to raise the physical dead, and he has done it, and he will do it again. But, you know, think about it this way. How many of you had a say in your um, birth into this world? Your human birth. You know, you, you didn't, you know, somewhere out there, somehow, you know, I think I'd like to be. I think I'd like to be born. Hey, that's a great idea. I'm, you know, no, you just popped into existence. You had no say. In the same way, those of us who are born again are born of the Spirit. We're born of God, not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh, but the will of God. Again, that... That's a hard thing for us to think of. In our culture, especially, you know, we, we pride ourselves on rugged individualism. You know, where there's a will, there's a way. I can do it. I don't need anybody's help. You know, we want to take credit for our being in Christ. At least some small part of it, we want to take credit for it. However, we find here that we can't. We can't. But 
from the moment of our conversion until God calls us home, our growth is synergistic, meaning it is a cooperation between us and God. This is why I think Paul wrote and he said, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. In other words, you have received it. Now you need to add to it. You need to grow. You need to mature in Christ. You are to find out all the ways that God's saving grace and his forgiveness of sin has impacted your life so you live a life that is pleasing to him. In salvation, God calls people to himself, but that calling comes with the responsibility to grow in Christ. Spurgeon was once asked how he reconciles divine sovereignty with uh, human responsibility, and his response was simply, I never try to reconcile friends. That's That's a pretty astute statement. These are not mutually competing ideas. They're friends. They go together. How exactly? I I don't know. God has chosen to reveal some things to us. There's other things he's chosen not to reveal, but I know that God is sovereign. And I also know that we are responsible. In verses five through seven, Peter tells his readers that in light of the truths of verses three and four, and having been called by God in Christ to salvation, that they are now to add certain virtues or qualities um, to their lives. Faith that was expressed at the moment of salvation is just the beginning of a lifelong journey of being molded into the image of Christ. So let's read, starting in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. You notice that connecting phrase there for this very reason. It He's pointing back to the previous two verses, but but he's also really being inclusive of all that God has done for those he has called for this very reason. God's power and his promises, our calling in Christ, for this very reason, make every effort. Now that phrase literally means to, to pay attention to or to do one's best. The New American Standard uh, uh, 95 translates it as uh, uh, applying all diligence, being diligent. So what he's saying here is that in light of all that God has done for us, the believer must be totally committed to growing in the knowledge of God while making an all-out effort to live for him. It's not just an acquisition of knowledge. Remember, we talked about this in the last couple of weeks. Peter uses two words for it. And and one of those words was that it's an intimate knowledge. It's a knowledge that transforms. 
Peter's going to mention another knowledge in, in this text too, but in any event, we, we are called to be totally dedicated to growing in Christ. We are to make every effort. We're to be diligent to do that. Now, this is informative for us because it tells us that spiritual growth doesn't just happen. And it also tells us that it's not complete the moment you come to faith in Christ. If it were, Peter wouldn't say, be diligent or to make every effort to do something. So it's something that happens after we come to faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is just the beginning. And in fact, that's why he lists faith first in this section. And it's also why he ends it with love. Because love is the ultimate goal of faith. You know, our mission statement is to love God and love people. If you love God, you love people, then you have fulfilled the law. The whole law was given and can be summed up in one word, love. And this is where Peter is going, that spiritual growth requires intentionality and due diligence. So we must be careful to obey all that God has commanded us. Now, Peter goes on to give a list of the things that we're be, to be diligent to do. And he uh, uh, you know, employs a literary device that was very prevalent in Greco-Roman times. And it's, it's something that basically, something is mentioned that builds off of something that was mentioned previously. So there's an item that's mentioned, and now the next thing flows directly out of that which was mentioned previously. Now, it, you, you see that there when he says supplement our faith. Supplement our faith. The word translated supplement means to supply or add to or furnish. And it carries a sense of generous, costly participation. This is going to cost us something. So Peter is effectively saying, guys, you need to take ownership of your faith. You need to have some skin in the game, so to speak. They are to add generously and sacrificially to their faith the qualities that are listed here. They are to be added in the sense that um, they are to grow. Because if you remember, we talked about this, that God has already given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. So how is it that we can add anything to it? Well, it's not adding something new that God hasn't given, but it's growing in what God has done and given to us. It's, in a sense, taking those seeds and watering them and nurturing them so that they will continue to grow and bear fruit. So the first thing he mentions is the word faith. This is the, the Greek word pistis, which literally means trust. But it means also having strong confidence in or reliance upon someone or something. Faith can also, though, be a body of belief, such as when you hear someone say, uh, or you're probably not going to hear anybody say it, but you know, the faith once delivered to all the saints. So it's a body of belief. But here, it's a noun. It simply means to trust or have strong confidence in. The verb form, by the way, is the word believe. Sometimes you're going to hear those two words used interchangeably. 
You know, have you believed on the Lord Jesus? Do you have faith in him? Comes from the Greek word pistis here. But then he says this, is that you are to add to your faith virtue. This is moral excellence or, or goodness. Faith here is, is not seen as something stagnant, but it should produce fruit. And, and Christians can only live uh, virtuous lives because of Christ living in us. The Holy Spirit giving us the power to live for him. Otherwise, we're going to live for ourselves. We're going to live for our own pleasures. But he says, add virtue to faith. Then he says, to, your, to virtue, add knowledge. And this word that Peter used is, is the word gnosis, as opposed to epinosis that we talked about previously. This simply means practical wisdom. Add, add wisdom to, to your virtue, here, what Peter is saying is that to live a virtuous life, we need wisdom. We need discernment. Um, because it doesn't happen naturally. Then he says, add self-control to your knowledge. This is really, really important because knowledge can be a dangerous thing, right? Knowledge puffs up. It makes arrogant. Add self-control. In Paul days, uh, excuse me, Peter's day, you know, they understood this as, as meaning that you take control of one's passions. We understand that controlling our passions and desires is only possible by yielding to the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. So in, in a lot of ways, you know, when you talk about self-control, you know, he's, he's not talking about you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. He's not talking about you and your own human strength being able to control your sexual appetites or any other appetite for that matter. And, and I'm thankful for that because in, in, in so many ways, I feel like I do not uh, have a lot of self-control, especially when it comes to food. Um, when I went back to Syracuse last week, um, I think I hit up every Italian bakery in the city. And I came home with like five loaves of bread, you know, and oh, just, and the last place we stopped was Columbus Bakery. Oh, and uh, the, they had just come out of the oven. Oh, crusty loaf of Italian bread, just, oh, it was so good. My wife tells me I got a problem. Um, and uh, she's probably right. But, you know, there are some things, you know, I gotta say, I struggle with self-control here. But what Peter really is, is getting at is, is not us in our own strength um, trying to live for Jesus. He's really talking about surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. It's really Christ's control that we yield to him in our lives. But we're to add to our self-control steadfastness. That, that means perseverance, endurance, we have to remember that the Christian life is a marathon. It is not a sprint. It's not how you start the race. It's how you finish the race. Then he says, add to your steadfastness godliness, which is really a disposition of life. It's a way of life. It is manifested in holy conduct and in our devotion to God. It is what we are called to be, but it's also what we are called to do, to be holy, to be godly. 
And those first five, by the way, seem that, that he mentions here, seem to be related to our relationship with God, whereas these last two seem to be more focused towards our relationship to others, brotherly affection, which is very interesting. I, I had to look this up. Um, I, I knew what the root word was. I did not realize that this word is actually the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Um, it can be translated brotherly love, brotherly kindness, brotherly affection, but it's the kind of love that we ought to have towards one another, towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and some of the, the things that would um, characterize this kind of love is um, kindness, politeness, courtesy, consideration, respect, generosity, service. But then Peter concludes with the last virtue, and that is love. And this is agape. This is the kind of love that God has for us. It is a selfless love that seeks the highest good of others. And you can't help but wonder if Peter doesn't write these things in this order, because his mind is going back to that day on the beach with Jesus, when Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. And Jesus is using the word agape and I think what he's trying to do there, at least in some small measure, is, 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 is to elevate Peter's love from, from pure brotherly love and affection to something higher. And here he says, add to brotherly affection love. Folks, this is how we confirm our calling and our election by diligently and carefully cultivating these qualities in our lives. Now, in addition to the benefit of confirming our calling and election, Peter gives us four other reasons why we should grow in Christ's likeness. So let's hit those kind of quickly, starting in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what are some of the benefits of growing in Christ-likeness beyond assurance of salvation? Well, in verse 8, I think one of the benefits is having a fruitful and fulfilling life and ministry. You see that? If these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. The participle there, translated increasing, means to abound or to overflow. So what Peter is saying here is that not only should these character traits, and, and I don't know if I mentioned this already, but in case I did it, th these are just representative. They're, they're not exhaustive. But what he's saying is that if these character traits are yours and, and, and they are in growing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. So as believers, we shouldn't be content with just saying, hey, they're in my life. They shouldn't just be visible. They should be overflowing. See, there's a, there's a difference there. You can, you can go with the bare minimum requirements. Okay, I got them. I'm, I got it. You know, and, and maybe people can see it. But boy, no one's going to miss it if it's overflowing. If you've got brotherly kindness, if you've got love, if you have self-control, it's, it's going to be noticed. It ought to be overflowing in our lives. The true knowledge of God always leads to fruitful and fulfilling life and ministry. The second benefit I see there in verse 9 is focused vision. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Now, in the original Greek, it, it actually has blind first. So it says that he is blind and nearsighted. Well, how can you be both of those things? I mean, if you're blind, yeah, I suppose. Well, I think the ESV really does a good job in translating this because it's the idea of the, you're, you're so nearsighted, you're so short-sighted, your vision is so myopic, it's, it's as if you're blind, you, you can't see. Now, there are two ways of understanding this verse. One is to see this as a description of phony Christians, those who claim to be forgiven by Christ, but who are not truly saved. Sadly, this is a reality for many people who profess Christ. The other way to understand this verse is to see it as a description of people who are truly saved, but whose sin has clouded their vision and tainted their testimony. This person is so focused on the here and the now and his own pleasures that he is blind to how the gospel and his own forgiveness of, of sin should impact his life and affect every aspect of his life. He can't see the big picture of why God saved him in the first place. And those that, that are living stagnant, disobedient lives can never have assurance of salvation. I don't care how many Bible verses you quote. God won't let you have assurance. You may tell people you have assurance, but deep down, it's more like, I hope, I, I, don't, I, I think if you're not living for Jesus and you claim to be a believer, if you are willfully disobeying him, choosing to follow your own pleasures, your own desires, um, you, you think God wants you to feel secure? No. I mean, Paul kind of demolishes that argument in Romans when, he's, when people were saying, you know, the, you know uh, because of grace... Oh, because we are saved by God's grace, we can sin. God's grace will cover that sin. They presume upon God. He says, no, may it never be. Don't ever think like that. 
If we're not growing in Christ's likeness, then we can't be sure that we're truly saved. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about perfectionism here. We will sin. We will blow. But, but are we quick to repent of it? Do we turn from it? Do we turn back to God? Do we beg and plead, God, deliver me? I want to be set free from this. Verse 10 gives us another benefit, and that is firm assurance. See, he says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, you know, he, he does not mean you're never going to stumble, you're never going to sin, you're never going to blow it. I think he is kind of referring to what comes in verse 11. And he's talking about as we approach God's throne, as we approach heaven, when this life is over and we stand before him, he, he's saying if you practice these qualities, you will never stumble on your pathway to heaven. You will never be shut out because you were disqualified in the process. Now, I like what Benjamin Warfield said. He, says, uh, he, he said, um, it is idle to seek assurance of election outside of, ho- of the holiness of life. It's futile to do that. I mean, down, down south, uh, where we were for many, many years, you know, they talk about once saved, always saved. You know, maybe you've heard that up here. But, but you know where that it comes from. It just, it, it, it's a justification that I can live a life of sin and still be certain I'm going to heaven. Because why? Once saved, always saved. Christians must, must never think, though, that Christ-likeness results merely from human effort. But, but likewise, we, we must never think that it happens apart from human effort. That we can just sit back, kick back, and, you know, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Remember, this is a cooperative effort. Unlike salvation, this is a cooperative effort between us and God. His power has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. And because of his power, because of his promises, we can partake in the divine nature. It is Christ's life in us that enables us to grow in Christ's likeness. Paul again says, God is at work in you both to will and to do. MacArthur said that biblical assurance is God's gift to obedient Christians. Do you see how that phrase marries those two things, divine sovereignty and human responsibility? It's God's gift to those who obey. The last blessing that I see here in verse 11 is future reward. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we take pains to cultivate our relationship with Christ, to generously and sacrificially add to our faith the qualities that Peter lists here, God will, in turn, generously 
provide us with a rich welcome into his eternal kingdom. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, when I come to be an old man, when I come to die, if I am truly Christian, death to me will be but an entrance, an entrance into a glorious life. As Christians, we're not assured of salvation because we pray to prayer, walked the aisle, got wet in baptism, attended a class, memorized 1 John 5.13. We're assured of our salvation by the objective truth of God's word, by the corresponding evidence of our lives, by progressing in the Christian life and by persevering in the faith. So I'll ask you again, do you have assurance of salvation? If you do, what are you basing it on? If you're unsure that you're a child of God, um, I invite you to respond to God's gracious invitation and call this morning to come to faith in Christ. You know, you don't have to wonder, am I one of the elect? If you sense God drawing you to himself, if you have a desire to turn from your sins, to turn to Jesus, to follow him all the days of your life, you'll know. And then you'll progress in your Christian faith and you will persevere. And at the end of days, you will have a rich welcome into his eternal abode. May each of us make every effort to furnish our faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. For in this way, God will richly provide for all of us an entrance into his eternal kingdom and the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning and for your word, your encouraging word to us. Lord, I think of that hymn that has the line in it, uh, what more can he do than he has already done? Lord, you have done for us all that needs to be done. We need simply to respond in faith to you. And Lord, I pray that you would do a deep work in each of our lives, that we would be conformed to the image of your son, and that you might use us in proclaiming the gospel to others, that they might see Jesus in us and be drawn to him and be saved. And we pray this in his name. Amen.